Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com and many popular podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, and the Family Podcast Network. You can listen on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 AM across Central Virginia, and 1650 AM in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 PM on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. That's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. I'm Selena Laura with VHHA, and today we are delighted to be joined by a truly inspirational person. Robin Yoder is a cancer survivor, clinical social worker at HCA Virginia's Johnson Willis Hospital, a triathlete, and founder of the Transportation fund to help cancer patients get to the hospital for treatment. We'll talk about that and more in just a moment, but first, a very warm welcome to you, Robin. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to share. From an outsider's perspective, it seems you've lived such a full life as a person, an artist, an athlete, a leader, and a cancer survivor. Naturally, each of our lives are shaped by the experiences we've had. One of the personal experiences you've been public about is your cancer diagnosis. The first when you were in high school, which stunted your chance to pursue collegiate athletics, and again in 2010, which required a leg amputation. Could you share some thoughts about your journey as a cancer survivor and what role it's played in your life, including your efforts to establish the Hawthorne Cancer Center at Johnson Willis Hospital, where you spent years helping people as an oncology social worker? That's a big question. You're accurate in stating that. I am a two-time cancer survivor, and my initial diagnosis with cancer and experience with cancer started in my senior year of high school when I was collegiately bound for Division I basketball. That was cut short in an instant by a malignant tumor found in my distal femur, which is the thigh bone in your leg. And at the time, the types of treatment that they were offering back then were amputations, but I had a very good skill set of physicians that saw a bigger picture for me, and they were on the cusp of clinical trials down at the University of Florida with my specific disease, and I was sent down there where I spent five months with my mom and dad living in a Howard Johnson's hotel going through surgery and treatment in a clinical trial to what they call limb sparing is what they saved my leg. So I was one of the first clinical trials way back in 1980. So I'm dating myself to what ultimately cured me. But because they left my leg intact, they knew there was going to be microscopic disease. So I was put through a second clinical trial of radiation therapy. I had 72 radiation therapy treatments twice a day for six and a half weeks. So it totaled up to be a total of 72 treatments. And that was very novel back in the 1980s. I was cured of that cancer went on and lived a really good life, went on to college, but not as an athlete. I was kept on crutches for 16 months after those two surgeries and treatment, recovering, letting my leg heal, but knew I would never get back to that level of athleticism. And it also forced me to be integrated into a different part of college life than I would have had as an athlete. So I graduated from college with an education degree, had a lot of ideals about helping people. Along in my journey, I had a world of people and a community of people that stepped forward and helped my family, helped me, supported me. So I got a really early exposure to what communities do for each other and always carried in my heart a sense of gratitude. Somehow I would find ways to give back if I survived this disease. So I carried that around as a young person, not knowing what that would ever look like for me, but I knew I just needed to keep doing good because good was done for me. But it was still a part of who I am as a person just to do good because it's just the right thing to do. After college, I joined the United States Peace Corps and was a volunteer in the island of Jamaica. 
you know, I was on a literacy project for two years, working in the primary schools and the high school feeder school. When I came back from that, I kind of got a different exposure in Jamaica of community, and it kept broadening my exposure to I love teaching and I love the children, but I also found I had another gift for just connecting people in the community and seeing a broader picture than just what I could do in the actual classroom. And I kind of naturally fell into what social work is, and I applied to grad school for VCU and finished with a master's, thinking I was going to do more of family counseling. But I needed a job right out of graduate school, and Johnston most offered me a job. Well, I had a familiarity with healthcare, but I had not been academically trained in healthcare social work. But I thought, well, I can learn this. I understand it from being a patient and being miles and miles away from all of my support because I'm from Virginia. But as that young 18-year-old kid, I was 800 miles away from everybody that I knew. I missed my last semester of my senior in high school. What I got from being in Florida was the hotel environment that my mother and I lived in in Gainesville, Florida was a community in my administrators, community of hotel owners and housekeepers and maintenance people that knew that we were there for a medical reason and they took care of my mother and I. My dad had to come back to Virginia to work to maintain our insurance to pay for the medical expenses. So the hotel took care of us. And on the week of my high school graduation, when all of my friends in Virginia were preparing for graduation and senior trips and classes, the hotel surprised me with a graduation party around the pool with all the guests. And that touched me so deeply that I just felt like I had to find a way if I lived to network people, to bring people together. So when I fast forward to my first job at Johnson Willis, it just seemed to be a perfect fit for my familiarity with people going through a big struggle and my ability to be real and connect with individuals here in our cancer program. And my job just kind of evolved. But it was different for me because I had a whole different perspective of what I felt like I wanted to do and show example and lead patients through what it looks like to live because I'd just grown up with it. So here I am as a young adult knowing a very different perspective that what can I do to impart that opening to a pathway for people to get permission to live. Don't live the script of a patient. Let's live the life that you want to live. And that's kind of what brings us up, I think, to this interview today. Among some of your personal highlight experiences are carrying the Olympic torch through Richmond as it journeyed to Atlanta for the 1996 Summer Games, setting two rowing world records, your family, and I imagine the countless lives you've undoubtedly touched through the Hawthorne Cancer Center. Clearly, there's plenty of roads still ahead of you, but thinking back on your path, what things stand out for you? Again, what stands out for me is what I've been talking about all along. It's people. It's the human connection. It's really athletically I am an athlete. I'm an older athlete now, but I'm always an athlete. And anyone that has been an athlete, you're always an athlete. It's a mentality. Those other things are just things that I do. But who I am really came about from my experience as a young person in Florida, going through a complete devastation of anguish, of wondering what was going to happen to my future, if I was even going to have a future, if I was even going to live, you know, got to Johnston Willis. I just saw lots of nice avenues in where I could make a difference. They needed someone in their cancer center, but they didn't have a written job description. And it gave me a lot of autonomy to develop trust with the medical community here in the administration to let me kind of do what I do and engage people and help give people just permission to live because I didn't really know any other way. I just had to live. As a young person, mortality meant different to me and mortality meant I wanted to be 19. I didn't conceptualize being 50 or 60 years old that I am now. I wanted to live the next day. So 
as I matured and understood that concept, I was like bringing that in, that energy into the center. And I was introduced to a foundation on the campus that was started by a Johnson Willis physician back in the 60s that was here to help cancer patients. Johnson Willis started to become a cancer-focused hospital. So as that began to evolve, my first patient was a family named Hawthorne, and both she and her husband were in our hospice care program, and I was working with them, and Mrs. Hawthorne was really looking towards a bequest and what they could do within the cancer community upon she and her husband's death to really help make a difference. And I always carried an idea in my heart, but I didn't know how I would ever have means to fulfill that idea and realize that idea. But all of a sudden, I'm understanding again how things work in my life. The right person is coming into my world, and my path is colliding with someone that has a means but doesn't have a vision. And I did have a vision that I wanted to create a center that people could come together and share in a non-medical threatening environment that looks friendly and inviting and upbeat and lively. And as I started talking with Mrs. Hawthorne, our ideas were kind of clicking. And when she and her husband passed, they left a very generous bequest to the foundation and earmarked for it to be something more permanent outside of the bounds of the arm of our just financial program. So I took my vision to the board of directors and gave them the vision of a center like a welcoming atrium, a lounge for cancer patients that had all the resources that could come in and seek emotional support, educational support, support groups, counseling, all under one roof that feels warm and welcoming. So that vision was accepted by our foundation, and we were able to birth what is now where I am currently sitting in our Hawthorne Cancer Resource Center on the campus of Johnston Willis Hospital that originally started out of the original doctor of Johnston Willis. So we've done a lot of really fun, wonderful things with our foundation. And it seems very unconventional if you have been in another center. Like if I'm going to go out and, and run, I'm going to ask my patients to come on out with me. I'm learning through this process. You don't have an excuse to tell me you can't try. And if I'm going to go horseback riding, I'm going to invite you to come along with me. If I'm going to swim, I'm going to invite you to come along with me and help you learn how to live your life and balance that out as you go through this. So to fast forward, it was 12 years ago that, again, I started participating in bigger events around the community. And I was in an Ironman triathlon down in Augusta, Georgia, and I was struggling in my running portion. And after the event, I, I said, I will let myself rest and I'll give myself six to eight months and I'll just let my body recover. And as I started training again, again, my right side, which is where I had cancer way back in the day, was really weak and having some pain and some swelling. And it just didn't feel right. But I, I understood prior treatment and that, that leg had been really assaulted trying to be cured, but something was still different. So I took myself to an oncologist here at the Medical College of Virginia, who by just coincidence again in my life was a fellow training a big physician down at the University of Florida at that time. And he's followed me my whole life. He's practices at MCV. So I called him and I told him that I was having problems and he asked me to please come in. And he felt what I was feeling. He saw what I was seeing on my leg. And a stat MRI and a stat biopsy led to a new, totally new diagnosis that happened because of the treatment that cured me way back in the day, which is such the irony of this whole story that the treatment that cured me at that moment could very well now take me out of here and, and kill me. 
so really what ended up happening is I had to have my whole right leg amputated. After all of this, that's what happened 12 years ago in 2010. So that is still the spirit of what I bring to the present day patient is this fishbowl life I've had to live because it's been a, I guess people tell me it's an inspiring story. I I don't always see it that way, but I do respect and understand when people tell me that because it's been a really tough journey, but it's the only journey I've ever known. And my whole spirit and wanting to live in this world and help make things better for the next person always is with me. So I have to do that myself if I'm going to ask that of someone else. So that is really the driving force in this foundation that I'm so proud of here. And thankfully, Johnson Willis has continued to see the value in what one of their doctors originally started and has continued to support us. So things became very challenging through COVID when the world shut down. And as we started to reassimilate to what our new normal is going to be in our center. Over the last year and a half, I saw so many struggles with patients just with the economy fluctuating, gas prices fluctuating, you know, trying to find ways that the foundation could continue to be helpful to patients. And then out of the blue last year, again, a humble moment, this hospital named me the national recipient of the first humanitarian award. I had no knowledge of that and very humbled that they picked me of this entire corporation to be that employee person. With that award came a $5,000 award. Actually, it came $10,000. $5,000 was for my own personal use, and $5,000 was to the charities of my choice. And I'm involved in two really meaningful charities here in Richmond. Obviously, the Hawthorne Cancer Foundation is one. And secondly, Sportable, which is a Paralympic sports and adaptive club for people that live in the Richmond metropolitan area that have physical and visual challenges. And so I split my $5,000 between both organizations and with Sportable, I earmarked that for a pickleball program because in the midst of all of this, I have learned to play pickleball. So Sportable put together a, a fun nine-week program this summer in a partnership with the Chesterfield Parks and Recreation and Chesterfield Pickleball Association. And we put on a really fantastic nine-week clinic this summer. And I was able to get 15 other athletes with disabilities exposed to this game that I'm now loving. And it was just a phenomenal program. And it also built my confidence up to where me as an amputee can feel confident enough to show up at the pickup games on Saturday and play with able-bodied people and gave me the confidence to play in a league this fall that I played with able. I was the only out of 310 people that played in the league, I was the only disabled person, but it brought my skill level up to where I can show up and play. And it just made me feel inclusive. And that's what this whole picture is all about. The other part of my monies went to the Hawthorne Foundation as I started to think about the challenges I was seeing with our cancer patients. I was really gutted by the fact that so many patients that were coming from outlying counties that were having to come five days a week for six weeks straight or three days a week for chemotherapy from outlying counties. We're having to pay four and four dollars and fifty cents for a gallon of gas. That became the barrier for treatment for some patients. Not a lot all of them, but for some they were having to make hard decisions to come put gas in their car to come for treatment or to buy food for their family. And I was like, this is just wrong. This is so wrong. The economy, I don't can't control the big economy, but I can control little pieces of it here. And so I took that money of the $2,500 and started a little transportation fund for gas cards for very specific patients. And we started to grow that fund. 
and this fall I made it a, a kind of create a fun event and here in the oncology world we really promote activity and I don't mean competitive activity unless that's what you do but just moving and walking the benefits of walking and eating well and we've got this great resource right here in our own backyard called the Virginia Capital Trail and I thought well why can't we why can't we walk it why can't we figure out something to do because the Capital Trail had put out this challenge to over the course of the summer to walk the trail and get people out there and engage in the community so so why can't we do that with our foundation so that's what I created it's called the fall challenge on the Virginia Capital Trail and it was just trying to challenge people to use the whole fall to pick a Saturday and you go out on the trail and you know, find points of interest and just move. It's a safe trail. It's beautiful. Ride your bike, rollerblade, walk. However way you take your kid, walk them on a stroller. However way you get there, just move and then tally up on your honor distance. And let's see if by the end of the fall, three months, you can have walked the whole 51.7 miles. But I've said, I'm going to do the whole thing. And I sectioned mine off into five days that I had plotted out how I was going to do this and I was going to make it my fundraiser. And that's what I did and ended up raising $14,005 for the transportation fund to build that up. So that kind of what brings us all up to date is to where we're talking at this moment. That actually perfectly ties into my next question. It was going to ask about the fundraiser walk on the Virginia Capitol Trail. You already touched on it, but would you mind kind of telling us a bit more about that effort and how people that are interested in supporting might be able to help out, contribute, or get involved? Well, we started the fall challenge on the Virginia Capitol Trail was just a concept to get people engaged in walking, but also engaging and interacting with this resource called the Capitol Trail. What we did at our center to help people visually get a sense of this is we have this life-size map of the Virginia Capitol Trail hanging outside of the Hawthorne wall in, in the hallway where you could plot your distance. And what we were hoping we would happen would be that for $30, for just a registration fee, and this is totally on your honor, that people could choose to participate and then tally up on your honor your distance. And if you were intimidated by being out on the trail, do it virtually. So you keep up with your mileage, and then you can plot it on our map. And some patients started to do that. I mean, patients were actually doing that and walking through their neighborhoods and plotting their distance on the map. But I was presenting, you know, come walk with me. And these are the days I'm going to be walking, and these are the distances best that I can figure. So we knew we were going to make this an annual event, but we had to just do it the first time. So my executive director came along with me, and we started Mile Marker Zero at Jamestown Welcoming Center in Jamestown and started heading towards Richmond, Virginia. And I plotted it out for five days. It was, you know, ended up walking a little longer the first day because there was some road race at the very start of our event. And we got so caught up at the runners at the very start of the mile marker zero, we walked in the direction they were going and realized after a mile out of, we were a mile out of our way, not on the trail. So we ended up having to backtrack ourselves before we could actually start. So we walked two extra miles the first day. So we ended up walking 15 miles. But as we were walking, we were able to really think together. He and I are very light thinkers and thinking what would this look like into the future and what were the barriers for this event for people not getting engaged. It was really logistics of moving cars and how would we get people from point A to point B and everybody's different abilities. For one thing, this wasn't a race. It wasn't competitive. It was just walk. So that's what made it easier for me. And now I'm walking on a prosthetic, so is it really easy? Well, I don't know. I've just learned to accept the fact that this is how I have to walk, so I just do it. And 
because I wasn't racing. I could just walk. And what was beautiful about it was when I saw something that was worthy of a picture, I would stop and take pictures and I was blogging it the whole way on my media, social media. And I was reflectively each night writing what I was experiencing, just trying to bring people in, but at the same time, directing them to my fundraising page. It was called the Fall Challenge on the Capitol Trail, Robin Yoder. And people then were catching on and just making donations because I'm never going to ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do. So if I have a vision, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go out and do it. That's just who I am. So literally people just came on. I didn't have any corporate sponsors. I just had individual people that just were donating right on my page all five days. And here we are, lo and behold, $14,000 later. And that's all going into our transportation fund. But I did have two doctors that I work closely with, doctors David Randolph and David Randolph II, take on the challenge. And they together rode their bicycles on the trail David II has a little three-year-old, so they had him on the back of the bicycle. So the three of them rode the trail, and they then themselves raised $6,000. So we now have raised $20,000 for what we know is going to do really good here in Central Virginia to help cancer patients. The fundraiser actually closes tomorrow, but that doesn't mean people in the community couldn't donate to the transportation fund or the other financial grant program fund, and you would do that by going to our website. It's called thehawthorn.org, and just make a donation simply on our website, and you have the right a section that you can designate how you would want your monies designated, whether you would want it towards the financial grant program or the transportation fund. Thank you for letting me share that part of who I am and what I do here. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I saw that you're an accomplished stained glass artist and you continue to be a triathlete and you're doing these fundraisers. And so I just have to ask you, one, where do you find the time and what have you learned just about the power of the human spirit through all that you've experienced and seen? Oh, goodness. That's another big question. Right now, I'm tired. (laughs) I'll tell you that. I'm not tired physically from that walk. You know, that was the first question everybody kept asking. Aren't you tired? Well, actually, I really wasn't. And I wasn't because I based myself, but I wasn't because it's this whole mentality. And this is the whole crux of where I lie with my patients, where my philosophy of who I am, how I operate, how I'm talking to you right now is how I talk to patients. I think there's a lot of relatability. There was a lot of very vulnerability with my recovery, with my amputation, because after nine months, I had to come back to work. I wasn't walking confidently or walking well. I'd never walked further than the 20 feet or so odd feet in my clinic. I'm having to now learn how to maneuver in a parking lot and a curve. And the first day I was coming back to work, there was a snowstorm in Richmond. I'd never had able to practice walking in snow in a clinic. You can't simulate that. And I'm trying to get to work and I'm trying, I cried in the car, sitting in the parking lot and called my boss to come out and help me walk in because I'm now experiencing a whole new world that was not built and created the way I now am. So I just had all these obstacles and I got into the building and I was falling down in the hallway at the feet of my patients and it really just put me in a very humbled position. But they also witnessed me get up, wipe some tears, someone would help me and we would just get on with it. And I'd have to explain a little bit for some patients that didn't know that I was out on the medical leave, but this is like my first week back. So, you know, I had to overcome a lot of things, but that made me relatable. 
so I've learned to push through, and I've learned, you know, and I kept thinking as I was walking down the trail, I had five days to think and a lot of time to think on my own. It was The foliage was beautiful. It was stimulating. What I was experiencing was stimulating. It was very reflective for me because for me personally, October was the time that I truly was in the clinic learning how to be a prosthetic wearer as a high above the knee amputee. So there was a lot of symbolism and for me the timing of when this walk occurred because I was taking my absolute very first step at this time of the year. Now here I'm walking 52 miles. Who would have ever, I didn't even know I could walk 20 steps. I walked 139,000 some odd steps on this walk these five days. It's just crazy to think about it when I really look at my journey this is the one thing that kept resonating in my head is there's just such a big difference between what one thinks they can do versus what one can actually do when you set your goals towards something and work steadily towards it. And you put yourself around good, positive, stimulating people that share similar goals as you. It's amazing what you're able to accomplish. So this was never about a competition. It was just about setting a goal for myself, setting an example to others, Don't tell me you can't do it. I just did it. And yes, there were times that I got tired, so I stopped. I didn't force myself to push through it. We just worked through it. But I've also had to work through so much. So this was just a physical thing to work through. But it was just a mental piece. And and I try to be very honest when I write on my social media just so people get a, a real human glance at what this has been like. It's been raw. It's been real. It's been gritty. But you just plug along, and here I am sitting here talking to you and proud to share that personal part of my story. But it was in a bigger context to help people outside of myself who come in daily that are sharing a similar struggle that I can relate to. I might have had a different struggle, but I get it. I get what it's like to have your life completely turned inside out and not to have anywhere to go to know where you can find that person to connect with. And hopefully it can just be here. All that I can do is validate your story and listen to you. That's huge. Just not judging people. People come from all different stressors and all different circumstances. But I'm going to sit and listen, and I'm going to find a way to help bring you out of that. Or either if I can't bring you out of that, I'm going to walk it with you. I'm always going to be respectful to the people that I choose to journey with and have journeyed with me. So I hope that answers your question in a roundabout kind of a way. Thank you so much again for sharing. And before we go, we just got a tradition on our podcast to ask our guest a few more lighthearted questions to close out the show. (laughs) So we've developed a list of 10 mystery questions. So when you're ready, go ahead and pick two numbers from one to 10, and I'll ask you the corresponding questions. (laughs) Okay, let's do one in 10. Number one, in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would your last meal be? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Crab dip. Nice. From anywhere in particular? Oh, no. Just crab dip. That would be my last my last meal. And number 10, what is your happy place and why? I'm still looking for that. Honestly, I think I've came close to that just in my own head, my own solitude, walking on the trail, just really reflecting and It sounds corny. It it probably doesn't sound corny, but really my own humbleness of taking in for my personal journey where I am walking. I never imagined that I would 
have felt that. I felt very much at peace just to disconnect from the hecticness of my day-to-day life, even though I was bringing some of that with me because I'll never not have that with me. I will always be an amputee. I will always wear a prosthetic to the last breath that I'm eating that crab dip, but I felt really at peace that I could do something that was simple. Walk was just simple, and for me, it wasn't simple. When I stood for the very first time on a prosthetic, I was devastated and terrified of how I would ever take a first step, and I've taken many first steps, and I took 139,000 steps on that trail, and that was a really peaceful place for me. I have many of them, but that just because it's recent and it resonated profoundly with me, and I feel like it really touched other people to follow along in my journey, and I hope somewhere along the way, I will never know this, but I hope somewhere along the way, Anything that I've allowed myself to expose my life in talks like this, that people hear some little piece, but I'll never know, maybe. Sometimes people tell me, but that I made them think one more thing, that that might be my possibility. I don't know what it will be for any individual, but I hope somewhere along the way, someone just challenges themselves just a little bit to stretch, because there really is such a big difference between what we think we can do and what we can actually do. That's what I challenge myself with daily, so I hope that that filters out into someone else, and they hear that, or they read that, or they see something, and they go, I can do that. In spite of whatever's going on in your world, it's still going to go on, whether you're doing it or not, so you may as well just get up and try. That's been my philosophy Do this. I can still be angry, but I'm still going to be angry and keep walking, or I can still be accepting of this, accepting something made it a whole lot easier once I let go of that anger and just allowed myself to accept this is what's happened now this is what I have to deal with and I just walked simply walked thank you so much again for sharing that and that will bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast if you like what you heard please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released and we want to once again thank our guest Robin Yoder for joining us today so thank you it's been a pleasure thank you so much